This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate Scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. We're going to be looking at Genesis 1, 24 and 25 today. And while I do not believe that Genesis 1 speaks directly against the theory of evolution, I do believe, however, that the theology behind the theory of evolution has been around a lot longer than the theory itself. In fact, I believe that the theology behind the theory of evolution has been around since the very beginning. And the verses we look at today, Genesis 1, 24 and 25, speak directly against those theological ideas. So if you want to learn how that happens, stay tuned as we learn how. Hey, uh, we have a brand new sponsor for today's episode. This sponsor you know very well. You are intimately familiar with this sponsor. You want to know who this new sponsor is? It's you! (laughs) You can be the new sponsor or a sponsor for the OneVerse podcast. Um, After talking with a bunch of friends of mine, getting some counsel from my wife and some other people in ministry, other podcasters, other bloggers, other authors that I highly respect, some of them encouraged me to start allowing other people to partner with me in ministry. And uh, so if that's something that you would like to do, I've set up a page on my blog for you to be able to do that. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash partner. And uh, you can give a one-time gift. You can give a monthly gift or something like that. Uh, and, and sort of there's more details on that page that explains why I'm doing this, why I've held off on it for so long and why it is now becoming necessary for me to start allowing other people to partner with me in the ministry. So uh, if that's something that you would like to do to be able to spread some of the content and ideas that I'm teaching on this podcast or on my blog or through my books, then uh, that page is for you, redeeminggod.com slash partner. I'm also over on patreon.com. If you know what that is, great, head over there. It's patreon.com slash redeeminggod. But uh, there's a link at my website, too, uh, at, at redeeminggod.com slash partner. There's a link over to the Patreon site there if you prefer to do it that way. Thank you for so much for uh, those of you who have already partnered with me. Uh, I, I'm surprised, overwhelmed by your generosity and your kindness and uh, just how it helps me know that what I'm doing is helping you break free from the shackles of religion in your life. So thank you for listening. Thank you for partnering with me. I I appreciate every single one of you so very much. Now with that in mind, let us move on to our study for today when we look at Genesis 1, 24 and 25 and how it speaks against the theology of evolution. So what we're beginning today is a study of the sixth day of creation, which is the pinnacle of the creation week. And this sixth day is parallel to day three, Uh, and in similar fashion, just like day three had two events, day six also has two events. The uh, first event in day six is the creation of the land animals, and that's what we're looking at today in Genesis 1, 24 and 25. The text begins with these words. 
let the earth bring forth. All right, so this phrase is similar to what we read back in Genesis 1.11, where God instructed the earth to bring forth plants. Uh, here, the instruction seems to be similar when God tells the earth to bring forth animals. However, there is an important distinction that I don't want you to miss. Uh, the, the distinction between Genesis 1.11 and what we read here in Genesis 1.24 and 25. In Genesis 1.12, the text says that the land produced vegetation. But here in Genesis 1.25, we see that the land does not produce the animals. Uh, they don't rise up out of the earth the same way the plants do. Instead, the text says that God himself made the animals, that God formed the animals. Now, when we get to Genesis 2, we're going to see that just as God uh, formed Adam from the dust of the ground, God also formed the animals from the dust of the ground. Um, and then, of course, sort of surprisingly, we're going to see in Genesis 2 that the order is reversed. Uh, over there, Adam is formed first and then the animals, but here God forms the animals first and, and then man. But uh, we'll talk about that sort of apparent contradiction when we get to Genesis 2. Uh, the reason for the order here is because in Genesis 1, mankind is the pinnacle of the creation week. And so God is saving the best for last. So he puts the animals at next to last. Uh, and the reason it's important that uh, God forms the animals and mankind from the dust to ground, rather than just having them spring up out of the ground the same way the plants did, is to emphasize that God is the giver of life. Uh, he is the life giver. This is important for God as the life giver to be the one who forms the animals and gives them life uh, because it, this is going to be a, a prominent theme throughout the rest of the uh, Genesis account, not just here in the opening chapters, but all the way throughout about God giving life to the, to the nations and giving life back to the earth when death enters into it. We're going to see that chapter 5 is sort of the death chapter and then what God does or what happens as a result of death coming upon the earth and God then being the life giver coming out of that. So uh, the theological truth here is that life stems from God and it's to be distinguished from the rest of the physical world. So uh, that is seen as is how Moses describes the animals as living creatures. Uh, we looked at this back in episode 13 with this word nefesh uh, and the fish, that the, the fish sort of had souls and, and this word, this Hebrew word nefesh. That was uh, back in Genesis 1, 20 and 23. And again, we talked just a little bit of review. We talked there that a lot of people think of nefesh as the soul, as the eternal aspect of a creature. And, and, and we said that if that's true, well, then uh, fish and animals must also have souls. And that gets us all into some strange theology. But uh, we pointed out there that it doesn't mean soul. It just means life, the, the life-giving element, the life force or something like that, uh, the, the, the breath even in a creature. And so just as fish have breath somehow under the water, uh, animals have breath, and we will see also that mankind becomes a living soul, a living being, when God breathes into Adam the breath of life. Uh, so uh, that, that's just a little bit of review, but it's also what we see here when God creates the animals. Now, also what we see here is that uh, of the animals that God forms, there's three sort of descriptive terms that Moses uses. The text, uh, the New King James anyway, translate these, these, these three terms as cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. Now, what, what do those refer to? Well, uh, first of all, all three terms are similar to the description of the plants in Genesis 1, 11, and 12. And, and we saw there there's, the terms have some overlap. 
But most scholars agree that, that uh, what we have here is a sort of a threefold description of the way people thought about animals back in those days. Today we have these weird descriptions of, of uh, biological descriptions, categories of uh, the animal kingdom, but they didn't you do it that way. Back then it was agricultural, so they thought of animals as those that were domesticated, those that were wild, and uh, everything else, the creeping things. So uh, cattle, the first word, refers to the large domesticated four-footed animals. Creeping things refers to basically everything that creeps along the ground, uh, reptiles and worms and things like that, lizards. Um, and then beasts of the earth are similar to the cattle, but they refer primarily to the wild and uh, untamed cattle, the wild animals. They could be tamed. They're undomesticated. So those are the three terms. And of course, they don't line up with the scientific, biological, animal kingdom groupings we use today. But again, that wasn't the point. It's not a scientific document. Um, this was the way an agrarian culture thought about animals. So uh, that's, that's what we see here. Now, what is one thing that's interesting to note, nowhere in Genesis 1, and not here, uh, creeping things does not include insects. You do a word study on the word there, uh, it's ramus, R-E-M-E-S, and uh, it never refers to insects of any kind. So uh, nowhere in Genesis 1 do we read about the insects being created. Now, does that mean the insects were not created? <laughs> Are they uh, creatures of the devil or something? You might think so if you're... Uh, an, afraid of spiders like my wife, or maybe you, I, I despise mosquitoes, so maybe you think those are from the devil. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, obviously God did create them, and they are just not mentioned here. Why Moses didn't mention them, I do not know. Was it an oversight? Who knows? They're just not ever, anywhere mentioned. But it's interesting, though, that Moses leaves out insects. It might be possible that here is another example of him making sort of a polemical jab against some of the religious beliefs and practices of his day, because the Babylonians had a story called Two Insects. And it talks about how the divine counsel of the gods brought into being the animals, the large wild animals, and, and, and small animals, and so on. And uh, they allotted their respective domains to the cattle and, and small domestic animals. And, and a part of this, of course, is the insects. And so Moses, by leaving out the insects, is uh, reminding these people about this story, this Babylonian story called Two Insects, uh, which uh, mentions the insects. And, and he's saying, no, you know, Moses is just leaving them out. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch. But uh, it's, it's an interesting parallel, at least. Uh, in other accounts, by the way, uh, the animals are formed from the ground and come from the ground, very similar to what we have in Genesis 2 and here in Genesis 1. Uh, in fact, in, in one uh, an account called, it's called uh, the Ex Exploits of Ninurta. Here's what it says. This is one section out of that account. It says this, Let the mountains make wild animals for you. Let the mountains increase the fertility of four-footed animals for you. That's what the gods are saying. Uh, and so note that in those texts, the animals do sort of just spring up out of the ground. But here, as I already mentioned, God calls, he forms the animals from the ground rather than having them just spring up out of the ground in, as, as, was, as we read in that other text. Now, uh, sometimes these other texts do have gods involved. Uh, one of the Babylonian texts, a different one than the two insects one, it's a different uh, Babylonian text, describes how the gods created the cattle and the beasts of the field. And the text refers to how uh, the divine assembly of the gods 
After they had created the heavens and formed the earth, they fashioned the cattle of the field, the beasts of the field, and the creatures of the city. Notice the threefold division there. Um, But what's interesting in this particular Babylonian account is that the pinnacle of creation, okay, not, it's, it is two creatures, but they are not man and woman. That is not, in this Babylonian account, the pinnacle of creation. Instead, the pinnacle of creation is two small animals, one white and one black. And uh, the text goes on to talk about why, at least we think the text goes on to talk about why these two creatures, one white and one black, were the pinnacle of this uh, created, the creation of this divine assembly of gods. But uh, sadly, the the text we have uh, breaks off at that point. And uh, we don't know what the rest of it says. It's it's just missing. So anyway, here in Genesis, though, and this is what we're going to see in future weeks, future studies, the pinnacle of creation is not animals of the field, but the man and woman. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation, not two animals, not insects, uh, not, not, two, uh, not a black and a white creature either. So, um, moving on then, after, after describing this threefold division of the animals that God created, Moses uses the phrase, it was also used of the plants and, and uh, the birds and the fish and the animals, uh, which is here, that this idea that they will uh, reproduce according to their kind. And again, I've talked about this before, so I don't need to say much about it. But uh, some, some New Test- or, I'm sorry, Old Testament scholars, creationists, like to use this to disprove evolution. Henry Morris, for example in uh, his commentary on, um, on Genesis, writes that, uh, let me see, he says, the evolutionary dogma that all living things are interrelated by common ancestry and descent is refuted by these biblical statements, as well as by all established scientific observations made to date. Now, I do not disagree with the conclusions of Morris. Uh, I, I personally don't believe I I'm agree with Morris. I don't believe that macroevolution occurs. I do believe there can be variations within a species. I think we'd call that microevolution. But as Morris points out, there's no firm, observable, scientific evidence for variation from one species into another. Okay, so uh, having said that, though, Matthew 1, 24 and 25 wasn't written to disprove evolution. Because the theory of evolution did not exist when this text was written. Uh, and you, you know, even the grammar, the language, uh, the, the words that Moses uses here can't be used to disprove this idea of the evolution of species. Uh, that word men, uh, which is kinds or kind, according to their kind in Genesis 1 here, uh, it's not a technical term for species. It's something closer to category or variety. And what that means is uh, the scientific debate between creation and evolutionism is, a, is about genetics. But uh, this class, this word here, men, it's not about genetics at all. Then People back then, they knew nothing about genetics. Instead, they were primarily concerned with appearance and function. So that's how to read this text. According to their function, according to their appearance, uh, they classified things according to their appearance. All right. Uh, and furthermore, the text simply says these animals were created after their kinds. It doesn't say that these were the only kinds of animals that there ever will be. So, again, uh, we can't use this text to disprove evolution. Now, 
uh, do not think, of course, that, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that you can use this verse to prove evolution. Again, it's not the debate. Evolution, uh, creationism, it's not even the debate, okay? As I've stated numerous times before, Genesis 1 was not written with the creation versus evolution debate in mind. So if we import that idea into Genesis 1, we're going to end up distorting the text and misunderstanding the message it contains. Uh, Genesis 1 is not about creation or evolution. So Genesis 1 is all about God and how he is greater than anything else in the world because he created everything in the world. Okay, so uh, while Genesis 1 is not about creation, it is about the creator. Uh, The chapter introduces the reader, you and me, to the character of the creator, the power of the creator, and the goals of the creator. And we've been seeing that as we work our way through this chapter. And especially we've been seeing the same truth that Paul writes in Romans 8, that neither height nor depth nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God. That's the primary point of Genesis 1. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And so here in Genesis 1, 24 and 25, this repeated phrase, according to their kind, uh, the theological truth we see here is that the Creator makes creators. Uh, The ultimate creator that God made, of course, uh, the ultimate creator is God, and uh, the ultimate creation, which is a creator that God made, of course, is man. Uh, Again, we'll see that in starting in verse 26, but uh, the thing to note here is uh, that God is the creator and he creates creators as well. And that's this idea that they, uh, according to their kind, they reproduce according to their kind. Uh, The final thing to note in this verse is that, once again, God sees what he has created and he calls it good. Uh, There's something very curious, though, about the way Genesis 1.25 closes. Now, uh, if you go back and look at after God created the fish and the birds, he blessed them and invited them to be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. But here, after God creates the land animals, he doesn't bless them. Uh, He doesn't invite them to be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Instead, what he does is he moves immediately to the creation of man and woman. And it's only after God creates the man and the woman that he then that he blesses them and invites them to be fruitful and multiply. So uh, the question is, what, did he ignore the land animals? I mean, do they not get this blessing? Are they not supposed to be fruitful and multiply? Well, there's a couple theories. Uh, the first theory is that uh, maybe the animals aren't blessed because they compete with man for food and so endanger his survival. And so, you know, because man and animals compete for land and compete for food, they don't, you know, the the people back then, Moses back then, didn't bless them. I don't don't like that idea. I think man and animals were supposed to work in harmony together, and that is partly why God gives dominion to the man over the animals, not so he can rule them and kill them, but so that he can work with them in the earth. So I go with the second opinion in that basically the animals are not blessed here because uh, the blessing in 128 is not only for the man and the woman, but for everything created on the sixth day, which includes the land animals. Okay, so uh, that's that's my view. I think that second view makes the most sense of the text. And and that brings us to really the concluding idea for today's episode and sort of what I introduced today's episode with. I've said over and over again that I don't think Genesis 1 can be used to disprove evolution. I want to clarify something. What I mean is that I do not believe Genesis 1 can be used to disprove the science, or, or depending on your view, the lack of science behind evolution. 
no, if, if you want to dis look at it this way, if you want to disprove the science of evolution, you have to use science to disprove evolution. Okay, uh, you have to you have to if you if you want to argue against the science of evolution, you have to do so with science. And and since Genesis one isn't science, it's theology then you can't exactly use the theology of Genesis 1 to argue against the science of evolution. Does that make sense? But here's the thing. There is a theology behind evolution, or there is a theology of evolution. And since Genesis 1 is theology, you can use the theology of Genesis 1 to argue against the theology of evolution. Let me, let me try to explain this a little more in more detail. Uh, most proponents of evolution, not all, but most, many, I should say, uh, don't think there is really any theology in the theory of evolution. But they're mistaken. Everybody's a theologian. And, and really, those who claim do not have a theology are some of the most dangerous theologians around. Uh, and now, uh, I, I'm not saying that the theology, or I'm not saying evolution existed back in the days of Moses. We've talked about that over and over. But I, what I am saying is that the theology behind the theory of evolution did exist, even though evolution did not. And the theology hasn't changed in thousands of years. Uh, the theological ideas which sort of form the foundation of evolution really are as old as the world itself or as old as sin itself, I should say. The theological ideas which support atheistic evolution, those are the real danger of evolution, and they were definitely present in the days of Moses. Evolution really is nothing more than a scientific way or scientific attempt to put theology into uh, different ways, different format. So, again, you can use Genesis 1 to argue against theology. Let, let me explain. What is the theology of evolution? What, what are some of the ideas, uh, the theological ideas that form the foundation of evolution? Well, here's one. Man is just another animal. Yeah. And we teach that in our schools. We teach it in our culture. We teach it in our society. And what do we expect? Uh, man and woman behave as animals, depraved. Okay? But it goes beyond that. Uh, man has passions and desires, just like the animals. And so it's wrong to deny our passions and desires. Uh, we see that all over the place to do it. Well, if it feels good, do it. All right? That's that idea. Uh, since uh, you have this passion, since you have the desire, since you have this hunger, this craving, you might as well give into it because, you know, why deny yourself? Um, that, that's, that's one of these theological foundational ideas behind the theory of evolution. Or here's another one. Since might is right and only the fittest survive, okay, that didn't begin with Charles Darwin, survival of the fittest. That's been around forever. Then, and here's the conclusion, then there's nothing wrong with me hurting, killing, or enslaving you if I can get away with it because all it means is might is right. Right? If I'm more powerful than you and I can kill you or rape you or enslave you or hurt you all right, or extort you, then uh, might is right. I'm more powerful, therefore I have the right to do that. Those ideas ruled. Uh, government, one of, the, one of the purposes of government is to hold back this idea, but government takes this idea and uses it itself. The more powerful governments feel like they have the right to rule over and even enslave and extort sometimes the weaker governments, the weaker areas of the world. 
in the days of Moses, people would have stated some of these ideas a little bit differently. Back then, they talked about how only some animals and some humans were divine, but everybody else were just slaves to be used, fodder to be treated like trash by those in power. Uh, most animals and most humans were not divine in the days of Moses. And uh, so those animals and humans that were not divine, they could be owned, sold, beaten, killed, raped, treated. However, those in power, those who were divine, deemed fit. And sometimes, in various cultures, humans were less valuable than some animals. You can see that sometimes. I was over in India. Uh, Cows, in, in various parts of India, cows have more rights than humans. Cows can sit on streets and block traffic, and cows can get fed while humans starve. And, and it's just uh, because in, in some parts of India, cows are viewed as divine creatures. They have more power, more rights, more value than humans. Okay, that idea has been around since sin entered into the world. So in this creation account, Moses has been building a case to show how humans are the pinnacle of creation. And we haven't gotten to that part yet. But in Genesis 1, 24 and 25, we've seen that, well, the other creation accounts, these Babylonian and the Canaanite ones and Egyptian ones, well, well, they had certain animals as the pinnacle of creation. When God creates animals, he then immediately moves on to the pinnacle of creation, which is mankind. He doesn't bless these animals. He's, he's trying to, and it's, it's, I think it's intentional on his part, to move straight on to the pinnacle to show how important humans are. And uh, uh, we've seen that while God does not, while, he, while God does create the animals so that they too can become creators, so, so that they can reproduce after their kind, the animals themselves are not divine. They are not gods. They are just another aspect of God's created order. Now, uh, in today's society, I, I really think that we need nothing more than a return to the biblical theology of mankind. I firmly believe that the root cause of war and violence and poverty is the theology that some people have, the, the theological idea that is inherent within evolution, that humans are just evolved animals, that humans are, are no better than animals, and sometimes humans are worse than animals. Salmon, sometimes, are more important than humans. Uh, now, it's true that humans often behave worse than animals, but um, I, I personally, I think this is a symptom of evolutionary theology. Uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's, we, we, we behave this way because evolution has told us we're no better than animals. Instead, what we need to be told is that we are better than animals. Um, we have more value and more worth, and that doesn't mean we can extort them or ruin them or, or wipe them out or abuse them. Again, we'll get into that when we talk about when, when God gives us dominion over the animals, but but uh, people behave like animals or worse than animals when they believe they are no better than animals. And so what we need to do is get back to the truth of Genesis 1, that while the animals are vitally important, while they have value in God's creation, while animals are to be tended and cared for by humans and never to be taken advantage of, never abused, to be treated with dignity and respect as cohabitants of this earth, the true pinnacle of God's creation is the human being. You and I are the incarnation of God's glory. We are the representatives of God on earth. 
Imagine what would happen if all humanity came to a realization of the glory of all humanity. How could you and I go to war against someone who is God's glory in the flesh? How could we ever feel that someone is less valuable or less important than we were simply because they were born in another country or had different colored skin or made less money than we do? So look, even if Genesis 1 cannot be used to argue against the scientific theory of evolution, Genesis 1 can be used to hold before the world a portrait of humanity as the shining and glorious pinnacle of creation, far above plants and animals and all other created things. And we're going to get a lot more of this as we look at Genesis 1, 26-31 in future episodes, but... For now, from uh, these two verses, Genesis 1, 24 and 25, just recognize that as wonderful as animals are, as important as they are, animals are not divine and animals do not rule the world. Hope you found this episode a bit of a relief. I know some of you have been getting a little bit nervous as I talk about how Genesis 1 cannot be used to disprove evolution. Hope today sort of calmed your fears a little bit. Genesis 1 can be used to disprove the theology of evolution. A theology that's been around since the very beginning. So if you want to use Genesis 1 to argue that way, I am on board with you. Genesis 1 is not a scientific document, but it is a theological document. So let's attack the theology of evolution, which is really the strength of evolution anyway. Let's tell people they're valuable, they're loved, they are important, they are the pinnacle of creation, and we are to use that power and that position to bless and to love and to take care, not just other humans, but the animals as well. Hope you found this episode encouraging, insightful, instructive. If so, would you uh, share it with others? Let people on Facebook know or Twitter know. I also invite you to become a partner with me in helping fund future episodes of this podcast. You can do that at redeeminggod.com slash partner. I really appreciate those of you who uh, opt in to become a partner with me on this. As always, if you have not left a review on iTunes, you can do that as well. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash iTunes. You'll be going taken over to iTunes and you can leave your rating and review there. That helps other people find this podcast. Really appreciate you listening. See you next time when we begin to look at Genesis 1, 26.